0: Hi, welcome back to Unleashed at Work and Home. Today, my special guest is Samantha Clark, a licensed clinical social worker who is the clinical director of Doorways for Women and Families in Arlington, Virginia. And I asked Sam to come on today to talk to me about something called Adverse Childhood Experiences, which I just learned about in the last two years and have found really fascinating and I think perhaps really relevant for a lot of us in animal-related fields. So welcome, Sam. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Colleen. I appreciate being here today.
0: So tell me a little bit about Adverse Childhood Experiences. What What is that?
1: Much like you, I have really enjoy learning about what we call ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. Um, My career as a social worker working with uh, people who've experienced trauma in their life, both as children and adults, has um, allowed me the opportunity to learn a lot about ACEs. And so what ACEs or adverse childhood experiences are, are a series of questions specifically 10 uh, questions, we call it an inventory, that originally came out of a study done by Kaiser Permanente in San Diego back in the 90s. And interestingly enough, it was done as part of a healthcare inventory or health screening where they were able to assess 17,000 patients who were members or participants in an HMO. And interestingly, um, they were able to screen about 50% women, 50% men, and um, the mean age of those participants was about 57. So out of this study called uh, the ACEs study, they were able to determine that based on these adverse childhood experiences, there was a direct correlation between these experiences in early childhood and later adverse health experiences in adulthood. And it wasn't until the completion of this study that we were able to see and experience and recognize that what happens to us in childhood um, has a direct correlative effect on us in adulthood. And these can be mental health concerns, behavioral concerns, relationship concerns, and health concerns. And these can be things like diabetes and um, heart conditions and asthma. So sometimes we think, and may have been led to believe that those things that happened to us when we were kids, we can just maybe shut that door and leave those things there. But interestingly enough, this study showed us that there are long lasting and significant impacts from those adverse experiences we have in childhood.
0: I thought it was really interesting that I read a book about it, Nadine Burke Harris's book, The Deepest Well, maybe? She said, they aren't so much concerned about what the adverse childhood experiences were as how many, you know, that, that how many of these 10 questions you would answer affirmatively has a big effect that if you have a score of two, you're probably going to be less impacted throughout your life than if you had a score of, say, six. Is that something that you've experienced in your work? So yes, absolutely.
1: Um, What we have discovered is that through this study and ongoing into the mental and behavioral health and social science fields, we have discovered that um, as many as 40% of individuals have an A score of two or more, and 20% of individuals have a score of Three or more, and as many as 12% have a score of four or more. And these questions range in areas of physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, physical neglect, emotional neglect, intimate partner fa- uh, violence or family violence, having a substance abuser in the home, as well as household mental illness or parental separation or divorce, as well as having an incarcerated parent. So these questions span a significant array of issues that might impact a child growing up in the home. And so to answer your question about uh, does the higher score have a correlative effect with adversity in adulthood, uh, the answer is definitely yes. Um, What we see is the higher score oftentimes leads to or indicates a a greater significance of challenges for adults that we're working with and serving. And that can be anything from an increase in struggling with um, mental and behavioral health that can be um, having issues around um, housing instability uh, this can be any number of, of things. Interestingly, what we see is that with a score of four or more, adults are 460% more likely to suffer depression. Wow. significant number. Did you say 460? Yes, ma'am. Wow. 460% more likely to suffer depression. If you have a score of seven or more, you are 3,000% more likely to attempt suicide. So, these are significant indicators. You know, if you have a high ACEs, you are 500%. percent is are a like 500% increase um, in adult alcoholism. And so, these, these scores are something that we in the social sciences and fields of mental, mental health, behavioral health, substance abuse treatment, take very seriously because there's a direct correlative effect between what we have seen in adverse childhood experiences and ongoing adult adversity and challenges.
0: Mm -hmm. And you really covered a whole spectrum there when you said you would see effects in mental health, behavior, relationships, and physical health. There's no way to predict what any one person will have effect-wise, right? I mean, two children in the same household might both have effects, but one might have behavioral ones and one might have physical ones.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. It's, um, it's a very, to your point, Colleen, it's very individualized. Um, it's not a, a guarantee of adversity. If one experiences adverse childhood experiences, I think that's very, very important to recognize that we can all experience adversity differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sometimes there are internal factors of resilience um, that allow us to overcome adversity. Sometimes there are also protective factors in our family, in our community, and in our environment that allow us to overcome uh, these adverse experiences in childhood. And so um, it is not a guarantee or a given that an individual who has adverse childhood experiences um, and who has a score that is particularly high is, is necessarily going to have a negative correlative outcome, and is going to be someone who is going to suffer negative consequences or outcomes. So I think that we also want to maintain that framework that these are certainly circumstances that can be overcome,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: people have a tremendous capacity for resiliency.
0: Which is the whole point of this podcast. The whole point is that, you know, we all have challenges and we all want to be looking for our tools to, to deal with those. That's really our goal here. So, so let's say that, that a person has a number that, you know, we'll put them in the 20% category of three or higher. Um, mm-hmm. They're an adult, this is in their past. What are the tips that you would offer to them today for improving their resilience?
1: I think one of the key things to improving resilience, um, especially if they recognize they have a traumatic history, is to take some—I guess the word that I would use—is uh, like ownership. Some recognition that there is trauma in their history. It's—it's um, it's kind of that. It's—it's it's the kind of start by by owning and recognizing their own history, which is critical. And sometimes it's hard to take that inventory. And so it's, it, that's a critical first step. Um, and it's also important to have a, a support system, ideally, um, that can support you in beginning the healing process. And like I mentioned before, Colleen, these are a, a, rather, a rather wide array of traumatic experiences. And so someone who perhaps had um, an incarcerated parent or had a, a parent with mental illness or something like this can can be a vastly different experience from, from a, a, an individual who experienced severe um, childhood sexual abuse.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we want to always be cognizant of um when someone is overcoming trauma and relying on their resiliency factors that's always going to be a very individualized experience and they're going to come into healing in their own time and with a need for different resources and so it's going to be something that is not an experience that we can necessarily apply one prescriptive response Right um, to a situation, so I think that that's I- important. Is that we recognize that each individual's path towards resiliency and path towards healing is going to be number one based on their trauma history, based on their um, capacity for healing, the resources they have available to them, their support system, and you know, an A score. Um, while very relevant and a very good indicator of what is to be overcome, is also a number. Mm -hmm. And that number can reflect very different things for each individual person.
0: And and we want to be
1: aware and respectful of that.
0: And I think that's a really good point because I have certainly been in conversations with people where they will be talking about a third person who's not in the conversation, and they say, well, she's so hung up on this thing from her past, and I overcame that and more, and why doesn't she just get over it? And it is so individual, and, and yes, you did, you overcame that and more, yay you, I'm not taking anything from there, but that whole piece of why can't you just get over it, just move on, it, it comes down to more factors than we can always see right there on the surface.
1: Right. Right. And, you know, one of the things that I, I think is critical about understanding trauma and understanding a trauma-informed approach to, to healing and overcoming one's array of trauma and, and the need to move forward with healing is, is recognizing that it's not kind of what's wrong with you. It's what happened to you. And we may have very different experiences and, you the capacity to navigate those experiences are different for each of us. Mm -hmm. And so recognizing that and being able to message that in a sensitive and informed and compassionate way is very critical because when I'm able to hear the message of um, you recognizing that something happened to me and that... That is okay, and that nothing is wrong with me because of that. That's very affirming, mm-hmm. very connecting, and it allows me to recognize that we are more the same than we are different. Because I'm willing to believe that we may all have different scores in our in our kind of ACE scores, but I'm I'm willing to imagine that we all have some experience with grief, loss, adversity, and I think there's more that connects us than um, divides us. So being able to recognize that when helping someone on a healing
0: journey, I think is is critical. Yeah, years ago someone said to me, everybody has a story that could break your heart. And I think it's really true that That it's easy to look at someone else's life and say, oh, you know, that person has it easy or they've got everything or, you know, look at their Facebook feed. All they do is vacation and have fun. Um, But the reality is, we all have had grief and we've all had struggle and we've all had loss and we've all had disappointment. And we may not know each other's grief and struggle and loss and disappointment, but that doesn't mean they're not there. And so, sort of recognizing that piece of we do all share that
1: that that validation and recognition allows people who are struggling with with adversity and whether that adversity is is in the present or is complicated by adversity from childhood to recognize that they are not alone Mm -hmm. and they are not unique and that what the what the ACEs study has shown us is that adversity in childhood is incredibly prevalent in our society. As such, so much so, excuse me, that our healthcare providers have uh, directly linked it to um, to our health adversity in adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, another interesting. Is an interesting um, statistic for you is, is that, you know, when we think just, you know, beyond our mental and, and emotional health, you know, it, individuals who have, a, have an A score of four or above are 260% more likely to have a diagnosis of COPD. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, and there are so many more numbers like that where we're able to say that that kind of chronic exposure to toxic stress. When you are young and developing and your brain is developing and your body is developing, your heart and your lungs and these things, it's one of the critical things that's so fascinating to me as a social worker about ACEs and trauma is it has this systemic um, and critical impact on, on every way that you're developing, your your mind, the way you think, the way you feel, body develops, and the way you're, um, even how your organs Function that um, your body is flooded when you're under stress, especially toxic stress. Your body is flooded with these stress hormones, and our bodies are not meant to develop under that condition, and it has a lifelong impact.
0: So that's something we talk about with dogs all the time. As a dog trainer, we definitely talk about you know the developmental period through pregnancy and then the early period of development and socialization and whether this was a stressful environment or not, and whether it was stressful on the mother or not, and all of those pieces, and that there is a lot we can do to change behavior, but we can only stretch as far as we can. Like some, I Mm -hmm. I have a dog who had not a great start and he still has some lingering effects of that, and he lives with a dog trainer, and I love him madly, but he is not happy, dopey, easy, and lighthearted. Um, right, that's who he is, and I think that a lot of that is the chronic stress in his early period, his developmental period, and when things got safer, he still was very busy thinking, oh no, oh no, oh no. Hyper vigilance. Yeah. So so hypervigilance is definitely a behavior that would come with that. So what are some other attitudes and behaviors that you might see from somebody who either has an ACE score that's high or in their current adult life is under a lot of stress? What are some of the behaviors that might be propping up?
1: Um, well, there, there can be many. Um, as we spoke about, people can manifest their stress in, in many, 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 many different ways. And some of the, you know, one of the things that I guess comes to me, comes to my mind and that I think about is avoidance. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I think about is sometimes when life gets overwhelming and you're feeling stressed is it's it's easier just to kind of um, bury your head in the sand yeah, and you put it off another day or to not think about it. Um, whatever that might be, it might, it might be, um, not paying that bill because you're afraid you won't have the money. It might be not going to the doctor because you don't want to hear the diagnosis. It might be, it can be any number of just normal kind of everyday life things. But when you have an incapacity and a very low threshold to manage and navigate stress to begin with, because when you think about people um, who had adverse childhood experiences and their stress level and their toxicity is already kind of here, and for most of us it might be here. But these individuals have an exposure that's up here. And so when that bill comes in the mail, or when that call comes from the doctor, or when their partner yells at them, or something, you know, when there's a stressor, right. they're here and it's already up here now. Mm-hmm. And so the kind of um, people who don't have this to manage. They have a much wider range of managing stress, and and these individuals who are are navigating a much uh, smaller threshold really can can kind of flip their lid, you know. And that's in, and when we talk about stress, you know, when we talk about the brain, we talk about something called the hand model because, you know, this is where you, this part of the brain is where you is your thinking part of the brain, but when you're flooded with stress hormones. You don't you don't use this part of the brain. Um, it turns off and it disconnects, and so we call that flipping the lid. And this is your primitive part of the brain. And so what happens is when when you have all these stress hormones, this part of the brain stops functioning, and this part of the brain flips out, and you're only thinking with your primitive brain, which is, you know, your fear response, your fight, flight, or freeze. And so
0: let me just interrupt you there for one second. So our listeners can't see you so I'm going to tell you they tell everyone what you just did with your fist. I'm looking at the camera just having a conversation. I know you. you and I can see each other which is awesome but people listening in can't so um, Sam just made a fist with her thumb folded inside and she's talking about the, the thumb area being more of the more primitive brain like the amygdala and, and some of that early mammalian stuff and then the fingers folded over the fist being the um, prefrontal cortex and the more advanced portions of the brain and that's all of our yep. thinking and rational planning and strategic thought and all that stuff that flies right out the window when we're stressed and we just default to what we do. Right. <laughs> the, the react versus respond methodology. I mm-hmm. think that the um, the hand model of the brain is a really helpful uh, way of looking at it. I think that that does, and I love the flipped your lid. I mean, I think that demonstrates it so beautifully. Mm-hmm.
1: But so avoidance is, is one of the things you can think of a lot of others like trouble focusing, being able to identify feelings. They, they might only be able to kind of resort to, to one, or, one or two angry or sad or confused. And we know as kind of human beings, we have a much bigger array of feelings, but they, they really just have difficulty identifying them. They might have low self-esteem. They might have poor impulse control or um be prone to aggression it can be any number of ways that this uh, it, this kind of toxic stress and 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 chronic adversity manifests itself and also biologically when you think about it your, your body it can be like they can be sensitive to to contact they can be uncomfortable with touch it can be. Things like um, stomach problems and just kind of chronic ailments, uh, difficulty sleeping. So when we think about chronic stress, stress from early childhood, that just has has been kind of unrelenting. What we see is it can have um, systemic impacts across, you know, the body, social impacts, intellectual impacts, emotional impacts, and behavioral impacts. It really can be wide, widespread.
0: So if you are the coworker of somebody who is struggling with, say, trouble focusing and low self-esteem and poor impulse control, what are your tips for improving your relationship with that person? You, you obviously aren't close friends, you're not family, but, but you work with this person, um, and you care that they struggle, yeah. but they're having these issues. What tips would you have for that person?
1: I think if you are a coworker with someone who might be struggling with some of these things, I think it's important to remember that as a general rule, most people are not mental health professionals, so stepping into a mental health role is not, not advised. I think as coworkers, it's appropriate to, to, to identify, like I mentioned, some, some people have, 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 who've experienced chronic stress um, and adversity have difficulty identifying. Um, they they maybe can't even see it. They they're kind of chronically operating at a higher level of um, we'll just say stress. And so sometimes it, it helps to just say you you seem overwhelmed or you know you appear stressed to me. Is there anything I can help you with? Because sometimes just having it identified it, it's kind of like putting a mirror up, you know. But I I think the the thing that's sometimes not helpful is to come across as um, accusatory, like, you look stressed, or you must need help, because then it's implying that I'm not capable, or I've done something inappropriate, and that can feel belittling, or, because um, if I'm really struggling, one of the things I'm also struggling to do is I'm struggling to, to be okay, mm-hmm. and I'm struggling to to keep it together maybe and I'm struggling to not make it apparent that I'm stressed or worried or whatever these things are so I think you always want to approach it in a way that is supportive and asking um, or observing but not necessarily implying or judging.
0: That's a really helpful tip just last week someone said to me gosh you look tired and I immediately thought huh Right. Thank you. Right. Like it was intended to be supportive, but I was, I, I did feel a little bit like, oh, I was maybe supposed to be perkier, or maybe I was supposed, like, there was something I was not doing that I should have been doing.
1: It implies I'm supposed to be something else, and 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 that may make me feel very. Um, and I mentioned earlier that I may already have low self esteem if I'm struggling, and so if I already have low self esteem and and you've said something to me like that, I may feel even that how I'm going to interpret that is going to be clouded by my trauma, by my anxiety and these other things I'm experiencing. So I think that's important to recognize. And you can be creative. You can say something like, I have some extra time in my schedule today. Can I help you with X? Without saying, you seem really overwhelmed. Is there something I can help you with? It's, it's apparent to you that they could use some help. So you can just extend that offer by saying, I have some free time in my schedule. Can I help you with this project? So um, so I think that those things, if you have that awareness, um, are ways to recognize that someone could use some additional support without assuming or implying that there is a need there that they may be very sensitive about.
0: Right, right. Because... We could all use some help sometimes. Absolutely. But we do throw up our defenses when we're feeling uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, and that's human. That's human nature. And as we talked about with the flip the lid, uh, which you demonstrated so well, I think we are even more sensitive when we think someone might be thinking. We are going to be even more defensive if we think someone is thinking we can't do something well.
0: Well, thank you. That's really helpful because because you're right. We aren't mental health professionals and we're not trying to play them on TV. But when you're working with somebody and you want to be kind and supportive, it's helpful to have some very specific strategies, actionable things. What can I do and what should I maybe not do? That's a very helpful idea. So you do not work specifically with people in the animal care professions, but I did tell you that I was hoping we could just sort of brainstorm a little bit some of the reasons why people who had had childhood trauma might be attracted to these careers. And that is definitely anecdotally the experience that I have seen in my 27 years of dog training. I've heard lots of stories <laughs> about things sure. that are that are uh, traumatic and, and profound and meaningful to people. So, So just from that perspective of if, if as a child, you had had some of these traumatic experiences, what are some of your thoughts about why you might be drawn toward a career helping animals? So I think
1: before I talk about necessarily being drawn to a career with animals, I think I would preface that by saying I think people would be drawn... In general, people who have experienced adverse um, childhood experiences or complex trauma in early childhood, I think that they are drawn to animals because there's a decreased threat there, is what I will call it. it. There's a lack of expectations around, it can be any number of things. And again, this is very specific or can be very specific to the type of trauma they've experienced. But, you know, you are not, you know, that other, you know, another person can pose a threat uh, in any number of ways. But an animal is uh, much less likely to threaten you with, you know, physically or verbally, although there may be some discrepancy there. But, you know, they're not going to judge you. They are not going to, you know... Threaten your very safety in the sense of um, that sense of security that you need. In terms of a lot of times the trauma that our that children experience that transcends into adulthood has to do with that is very relational. Mm-hmm. It's very much in terms of the relationship that is experienced in the caregiver role. So it is about that relationship it, 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 between someone who is supposed to take care of you, someone who is to, who is supposed to provide safety and security, and someone who is supposed to like protect you. So it's this kind of um, trinity of of safety, and what, when that is violated. In in any number of ways, either that caregiver is um, incarcerated, or that caregiver becomes physically abusive, mentally abusive, is using substances, is sex, you know sexually abusive. These that is that becomes a very threatening relationship. And so when I when these um, children grow up and become adults, the sanctuary, a relationship with an animal or animals. They don't have to navigate any of that because as children, relationships with adults became, were unsafe. And so as adults, relationships with adults still feel unsafe.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And so I think there's that safety, that implicit or implied safety with animals, as well as um, just kind of an inherent freedom that comes with not having to navigate the, the... Unknown, and their the rules as they understand them around adult relationships are very confusing. Yes, human relationships are confusing and um, scary and and challenging, and so they can bypass all of that with animals. And so there's a lot of comfort and security that comes with that. So just in general, I think. That's kind of a a baseline or a foundation.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great description. And I was I was taking notes. I'm not sure I got the the trinity of security that the trinity of of things you said, but I could see. Here's what I think I had was that the the parent would provide care, safety, and security and protection. Did I miss one? Was there something else? No, that's okay, right. mm-hmm. so. I also see people being really drawn to being the person who can provide those things for animals. So if I didn't have someone provide care or safety and security or protection for me, then it becomes even more vital that I would provide that for the animals in my care, that I would be the voice for them and really make sure that, that their needs are being met when, when others didn't make sure mine were kind of situation. That seems to be a common theme that I have seen.
1: I think that's a very, very accurate, um, Colleen, because I think much like I said, in terms of there's kind of an implied or inherent felt sense of safety with animals, I can also safely become the caregiver without almost a fear of of messing it up too bad it's you know like for some people there's a if i'm in a in a relationship you know a peer adult relationship whether that's a, an intimate partner relationship a spousal relationship you know that's that's challenging why I've, I've seen that be unhealthy so I don't know what healthy is if I'm in a parent-child relationship I'm the adult and I'm having a child that can be <laughs> I'm role model for that that wasn't healthy for me I'm not doing it right it's you know I'm, I'm messing up I'm making mistakes I'm, I'm just like my mom I'm just like my dad these things all these messages are, are floating around and, and, but, you know, being a caregiver, whether that's professionally, um, paraprofessionally as a volunteer, or just in the caregiving of my own dog in my home, you know, my own, my own personal pet, the confines of all the messages that we give ourselves about what went wrong what we should be doing better, what wasn't done for us, what we should, you know, all of these messages that are so toxic and unhealthy seem to be, um, we seem to be relieved from them when, but we still get the unconditional love
0: mm-hmm.
1: we all need. Love is so powerful, love is so healing, um, and we all need that, so it allows me as as an adult who who needs that to feel whole and complete, to be able to get that in a different type of relationship. So whether I'm a a caregiver in a professional or just a personal capacity, I'm getting that need met. And so um, without, in many ways, without consequence and without fear.
0: This has been a really interesting conversation, and I appreciate you delving in with me here because I think that there's a lot here, and I know that there are some research studies being done now with animal-related professions, and I will look up what I, what I can find for the current stuff and put that in the show notes, um, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the work you currently do and how people could learn more about that. Sure. So
1: my career has historically been in in child welfare. So I've worked with um, children and families who've been impacted by family violence and children who are currently um, in the foster care system. Uh, Currently, I work for uh, Doorways for Women and Families here in Arlington, Virginia, and we are a homelessness provider as well as the um, provider for Arlington County for domestic and sexual violence services. So we operate Arlington County's only um, domestic violence shelter, as well as our sexual assault response program here for Arlington County. And we also operate a homeless shelter uh, for families here in Arlington County. And so that in and of itself offers a lot of opportunities to serve children and families, women, men, um, anyone impacted by violence, interpersonal violence, Um, as well as family conflict and um, any type of adversity that um, creates vulnerability in families. So it's uh, always a wonderful opportunity to serve here at Doorways in Arlington County. And um, so that's
0: what I'm doing now. It is an amazing program. I am currently a volunteer at Doorways. So I will put links to that in the show notes so that people can learn more about it. Um, So I really appreciate you joining me today on Unleashed at Work and Home. This has been a very interesting conversation.